I don't know. Hey Alexa, what's the definition of fable? A fable is an abbreviated fictional story that aims to teach a moral lesson. Typically, animals or inanimate objects are portrayed as protagonists in the story, and anthropomorphism, or giving the characters human traits, is employed to convey the desired moral. Fables can be written in prose or verse and may feature other mythical creatures or natural forces as main characters. Okay, okay, that could work. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rock and Roll Fables with Kenny Bodkin. Okay, I got a story for you. Roy Orbison. He started out singing rockabilly and country and western as a teenager, uh, and he was eventually, in 1956, signed by Sam Phillips of Sun Records, who, of course, signed Elvis and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins. Um, but he really enjoyed his greatest success uh, with Monument Records. From 1960 to 1966, 22 of his singles reached uh, top 40 on Billboard. Um, he, I mean, songs that, that just go down in, in history now, like Running Scared, Crying, In Dreams, Oh Pretty Woman, and of course, Only the Lonely. So in the early 60s, he was working on a song uh, which became Running Scared. You know, like it was based loosely on the rhythm of uh, Bolero. Dun, 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 yeah. And um, uh, so he was uh, trying to record this and it, um, you know, it, there, there, was, there was some hesitation to it because uh, you really can't dance to that song. And that's what everybody wanted back then was something that the kids could dance to so he went in to record this and um, uh, they had an orchestra in the studio and um, he was told he was just told he would have to sing louder than the orchestra um, because uh, the orchestra was unable to be softer than his voice you know so um, he tried it and tried it and tried it and he really had a hard time uh, getting all the notes because he had this uh, he has an amazing range Roy Orbison does but he um, he had a hard time um, singing over an orchestra just volume wise so uh, in uh, the, the first uh, instance of this um, the, the producer takes him over to a corner and surrounded him with coat racks and formed a kind of an isolation booth 
to emphasize his voice. Um, after two takes that uh, Roy was unhappy with, the third, he abandoned the idea of using falsetto and just sang the final high A note so naturally it blew everybody away. The musicians stopped playing. Running Scared was complete, and it, it was it was huge. Um, uh, nobody heard anything like that before. He went on later uh, to reach um, number nine in the UK, and uh, it was a pretty big deal for Roy at the time. The song In Dreams. It was released in April 63. And uh, that month, um, Roy was asked to replace Dwayne Eddy on a tour of England. Um, and he was going to be the headliner. And the opening act was The Beatles. When And he arrived in Britain. He realized he was no longer the main draw. It was The Beatles. And he never had heard of The Beatles and kind of a you know he was kind of annoyed and he goes what's a beetle anyway and john lennon was right behind him and he tapped him on the shoulder and said i am on uh, <laughs> the opening night roy decided to go on stage first although he was the more established act he was going to open for the beatles so the beatles stood there backstage as roy orbison simply played his songs and got called back for 14 encores 14 he was asked to come back and he wasn't dancing around he was his his low rumble of a bass and his high tenor and finally when the audience began chanting we want roy again um john lennon and paul mccartney physically held roy back uh (laughs) so they could go on and play ringo later said that in glasgow We were all backstage listening to his tremendous applause he was getting, and he was just standing there, not moving or anything. Throughout the tour, the two acts quickly learned to get along, and and, uh, a process that was made easier by the fact that the Beatles really admire Roy Orbison's work, how can you not, and felt like a, Orbison felt a kinship with John, but uh, he was super tight with George Harrison, um, who he would later be in the Traveling Wilburys with. He was asked quite often why you wear sunglasses on stage and uh, you know it seems to me it seems to seem to a lot of people that it was a um, you know something was wrong with his eyes or something was uh, he was doing it simply as uh, to look tougher than he was and 
that it was a image thing. But um, what it was was way back in the day, he was touring with Patsy Cline, and he, God, wouldn't have that been a great show, Patsy Cline or Roy Orbison? He um, left his regular glasses in a hotel room, and he went on stage with his sunglasses, and it just kind of caught on with the audience. And uh, from then on, he wore sunglasses every time he hit the stage. Isn't that something? Okay, I got a story for you. I am a U2 fan. Sometimes they make it hard to be a U2 fan, but I try to look beyond the stumbles and um, and appreciate what they do, okay? U2 is an incredible band live. I've seen them on a number of occasions. Um, I've purchased all of their music, um, Usually the day it comes out, I'll, I'll at very least listen, listen to it uh, the day it comes out. Um, um, you know, this last one, I don't know. But, um, but I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about uh, 9th of May, 1997. I went to go see U2 at Sun Devil Stadium in Tempe, Arizona for the Pop Mart tour. Now I was very excited about going because this was Sun Devil Stadium. This is where they did Rattle and Hum, where it, where they had the, that great uh, um, moment in the film uh, uh, of where the streets have no name was, was filmed at Sun Devil Stadium. I'm figuring this is gonna be incredible. And it was incredible. It was, it was, a, it was Pop Mart, but it wasn't um, it wasn't uh, the U2 we all uh, know and love from Joshua Tree or Octung Baby. or uh, it, They were trying something very, 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 very different. And, and um, it, it had varying levels of, uh, of success. So, um, but this isn't really a story about U2. It's more of a story about me. I um, go into the stadium and we have to, uh, me and a buddy of me, mine, um, we have to climb down a whole bunch of the, uh, the rows to get to the bottom level. We were on the ground floor, on the, on the field, um, pretty close. We had relatively close seating. So um, we uh, start going down, you know, these uh, concrete stairs um, and uh, Rage Against the Machine was on the stage and you know how the lights sometimes will play tricks with your mind and you will think you're at the bottom of it when you're really not that's what happened to me I was walking down the stairs and I thought we were at the bottom and I tripped and I fell down about seven more 
steps like on my shins and on my knees and and was just splayed at the bottom of it you know any other show I would have you know been taken away on on a stretcher it really it was pretty bad I was very bloody I was messed up my legs were you know we're, we're dripping blood everywhere. It was not good. But I'm like, hey, no, no, no. This is a U2 show. Nothing bad can happen at a U2 show. These are great shows. I, I'm not going to miss a second of this. So I gathered my my bearings and uh, and we made our way down to the down to our seats. Now the Pop Mart stage was at the time in 97 was the largest stage ever made for a rock show late largest screen ever made for a rock show okay big led screen from one end of the stage to the other it was huge they had a huge uh golden arch in the middle of it it was um it was bananas it was really a a lot of show they gave you a ton to look at during this show so I was um, uh, I was already bloody, you know. So I get out there and uh, we sit down and we get geared up for the show. And you um, two hits the stage. They come out to uh, pop music, followed by Mofo, and it was all very, you know, uh, very loud and exciting. And, and uh, everybody in the stadium, uh, on the floor at any rate jumped up on their seats and uh, were standing on their chairs so I um, the, the chairs were rickety metal chairs with like a foam seat on them and uh, it was on top of the tarp which was on top of the turf which was on top of the field of Sun Devil Stadium so they were pretty wobbly and rickety so I jump up on top of my chair and uh, just so I can see and it you know I'm wobbling around and and uh, uh, and looking straight up at this big arc and and the whole it, it definitely gave me a sense of vertigo I was dizzy and I couldn't even I couldn't walk straight after the show it was incredible I was um, uh, like I say, it was sensory overload. Okay, towards the end of the show, and I am dehydrated as hell by this time, having lost as much blood as I had. I um, I waved down this this guy who's uh, selling Coke, Coca-Cola, uh, out of a five-gallon bucket, and he is, uh, um, you know, sells me a Coke for five bucks, and I get back to the chair. I open it up, it, it explodes all over me. Okay, so um, I am sticky now. I have, I'm covered in, in soda. And um, uh, so the show ends, and I am bloody. I cannot walk straight, and I'm sticky like I'd been on a three day tequila bender. And I hadn't had a drink in several years at that point and I was uh, completely sober but uh, it was an incredible show
Isn't that something? You've been listening to Rock and Roll Fables with Kenny Bodkin. We can be contacted at kenny.d.bodkin at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and support your local musicians. I want to listen to Nickelback.